0: If you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Jude. The book of Jude is where we will be this morning. Uh, Jude only has one chapter. So it is the book of Jude, Jude chapter 1, however you want to say it. Jude is the book of the Bible right before Revelation. So if you go uh, to the book of Revelation, which is the last book... And go back one, you will find the book of Jude. <clears throat> you know, a few weeks ago, our nation paused to uh, remember the 19th anniversary of the attack against the World Trade Centers in September the 11th, 2001. You know, Leah and I, when footage was on, on the anniversary of 9-11, we took some time to watch some of that footage and to uh, watch it with our boys, to uh, talk to them about what happened and why it happened. And You know, when I think about 9-11, I think about the the heroic measures uh, that were um, uh, just a part of that day, the, the heroism of our first responders. You know, we live in a day today where if you uh, appreciate or support uh, first responders, then you are endangered, uh, endangered of being canceled by our culture. But folks, if you want to know what heroes look like, take some time to watch some of that footage from September the eleventh, two thousand and one, and you will see uh, really what uh, what American uh, what Americans look like, how Americans respond to those kinds of things. We see how everyday Americans responded to those attacks. Police officers, firefighters, EMTs, paramedics, men and women. Just every, everyday citizens sacrificing themselves to help uh, one another. And so I think about the heroism of those first responders. But I also think about the, uh, the heroism of everyday American citizens. I think about Flight 93. Many of you are familiar with what happened on Flight 93. On September the 11th, 2001, four planes were hijacked in order to attack three uh, strategic major American targets by utilizing those planes as weapons to crash into those strategic targets. Two planes uh, were hijacked and crashed into the two. Uh, towers of the World Trade Center in New York City Uh, and and as you look at these strategic targets you see what's represented in them and uh, in the World Trade Center represented the center of commerce in the United States. Another plane was hijacked and crashed into the Pentagon in Washington DC. The Pentagon is the headquarters of the United States Department of Defense It is the military center of the United States. It is the command center for the military, Uh, and so we see that strategic targets. But uh, there was another plane hijacked uh, on that day, other than those three. And uh, the third plane was Flight 93, and and like like those other three planes, Flight 93 was overtaken by Al Al Qaeda. Is that how you said? Al Qaeda terrorists uh, in an attempt. Uh, in an attempt to uh, use that plane as a weapon. They were intent on crashing it into another strategic target which is believed either to be the White House or the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. But something different happened on Flight 93. After the hijack took place, passengers were allowed to make phone calls and they were calling loved ones and they were... Calling authorities and 911 and the FBI and trying to let people know what was going on. And in the in, in in all of that that was going on, the passengers on the plane who were reaching out began to get information and hear reports of what had been happening in New York City and what had already happened in Washington. DC and so they learned that these hijackers had no intentions of letting them go they had no intentions of letting them live even if they were to, uh, uh, to to do whatever they were told to do by the hijackers that's your that's your hope when you're in that situation if we just do what we're told to do we'll get out of this alive. And they realized they were not going to get out of it alive. And not only would would they perish, but countless others would perish too as that plane was crashed into whatever target it was meant for. So they had a choice. The choice was to sit back and comply, giving up every chance they had of survival, which not only would guarantee their own demise, but the demise and destruction of countless others or they could fight back hoping to save themselves but most likely guaranteeing the safety of other American citizens so they decided to fight back at that point they became contenders they were contending for the lives of others they were contending for truth Injustice instead of the lies and, and distortions of truth that the hijackers had proclaimed, the distortions of truth that had motivated these men to hijack this plane in the first place, they had become, these passengers had become contenders. And while they did perish on that plane, they forced it down in an unoccupied field instead of a, populated city and that sacrifice saved many many lives including those who work and reside in the White House. Now I hope and pray that you and I never have to face that kind of decision. I hope and pray that you and I never have to contend against uh, uh, against lies and evil in that kind of of way, to, that kind of way to make a, a, a life or death choice, but whether we uh, ever find ourselves in that situation or not, you and I have choices to make, choices that are important, a, a choice about whether or not we will be contenders for the truth. Jude was Jesus' younger brother And as Jesus' younger brother, he issues a call to believers. In the book of Jude, a call uh, to believers, and that call is to be contenders for the faith. So we're in the book of Jude, or Jude chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 3 and 4. If you remember, last week Jude kind of introduces himself and introduces who he's writing to. And now in verses 3 and 4, he's going to tell us why he is writing. Let's look at this. Jude chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all for some men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth and they are ungodly turning the grace of our God and the promiscuity and denying Jesus Christ our only Master and Lord let's pray father this morning we pray God that you would Help us to understand what it means to be a contender. Why it is that we need to be a contender for the faith, God? We pray that you would speak to us today in Jesus' name, Amen. So, Jude's purpose in writing is to uh, is to. Uh, Persuade the believers to become contenders. Look in verse three. Uh, he says, "He says to contend. I exhort you to contend for the faith." There is a there's a word in verse three that's translated as contend. Okay, the word, the Greek word is agonizomai, agonizomai. That is the same word that we get the English word, the same place we get the English word, agonize. So, Paul, so, so Jude was, uh, was uh, pleading to the believers uh, of Christ to become contenders of the faith. He's calling believers to take a stand for the truth of the faith and take a stand in, uh, so much so that it might cause them Some anguish, some pain, it may cause them agony as they take that stand. That's what he's talking about when he says for them to be contenders. He says be contenders for the faith that was delivered to the saints. Just so you know, just for free, the word saints does not mean super Christian. These are not super Christians in heaven with supernatural special powers that you have to pray to. The word saints in the Bible means believers, okay? Those who are sanctified, they're sanctified by the blood of Jesus, okay? So so he says to believers, he says, Be contenders for the faith that was delivered to the saints or to you once and for all. He's telling them and he's reminding them, Hey, by the way, as you contend for the faith, you need to understand that there's no other faith. He's telling them the same thing that Paul tells the Galatians uh, when Paul says there's no other gospel. Remember Paul said to the Galatians that if somebody comes to you preaching a gospel other than what we have already preached to you, if we ourselves come to you preaching another gospel, let us be accursed. If, if something comes from heaven and it's, it identifies itself as an angel and says, I have a new gospel for you, don't listen to it. Paul says there's no other gospel. And that's exactly what Jude is getting at here. He's saying not only is there no other gospel, but you as believers in Christ are to be contenders of that faith. He tells them in verse 3, he says, he says, I was eager to write to you about the salvation that we share. He what he really wanted to do is write to them and tell them about how awesome salvation is. He wanted to write and brag on the grace of God and how amazing it is to be in to be redeemed by the blood of the lamb. He says, I was eager to write to you about that salvation. But I found it necessary to write to you and to exhort you to contend for the faith. Why does Jude emphasize this? Why does Jude prioritize this message of being contenders of the faith or for the faith instead of just writing to them and bragging about how awesome it is to be in the faith, to, be, uh, to, to experience the grace of God? Why does he prioritize this? He prioritizes it, number one, because our faith is under attack. In those days, the faith, the gospel was under attack. Uh, Jude says, uh, verse 4, he begins talking about some men who were designated for this long ago. But he says, there are some men who have come in by stealth. And he says, these men are ungodly. Jude is writing his book to address some problems in the church. You see, in those days, corrupt teachers and influencers had infiltrated the church. And although they, from, from, uh, from, from the front and publicly, they would say, hey, we believe in Jesus, they said many of the right things publicly. But these influencers, the way they lived their lives, And the things they valued, or maybe even you could say some of the things they didn't value, they were impacting people. They were influencing people. But not to move those people closer to God. It was moving people away from God. It's bad teachers in the church were presenting a distorted version of God's grace they, they kind of reasoned it like this, they, 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 they fell into that trap of, of thinking, hey, you know, as long as you pray a prayer, as long as you check a box, and as long as you sort of identify yourself as a Christian, as long as you're willing to say, sure, Jesus died on the cross, I believe that, as long as you're willing to sort of say that publicly, it doesn't really matter. What you what you do in your life and how your life uh, how how you live your life because because the grace of God covers all those sins and so what they what they did is they fell into that trap of of thinking that they had a blank check to live and to do whatever they wanted because they had said the right words. See they. They thought that it didn't really matter how you lived your life. It was kind of like, you know, hey, I've prayed the prayer, so it doesn't really, really m- matter what God thinks about what I'm doing at this point because the grace of God is going to cover all of those things. Viewing the grace of God that forgives sin, they sort of took that grace and distorted it into almost, almost like some type of leverage. It was almost like they were telling people that, hey, if you pray this prayer, you have a leverage on God and you can do whatever you want and kind of hold this over his head then force him or trick him into, uh, into being okay with whatever it is that you want to do. And so... We understand that there was a great distortion in those days of the gospel in that church. You know, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul warns believers not to fall into that kind of trap. If you read Romans 5, you see that Paul spent Romans 5 emphasizing uh, how it is that people are saved and that they're saved through faith alone and not by works. That's something that the Apostle Paul emphasizes over and over and over again in his writings because he was writing to people who were typically tempted to try to earn their way to heaven. And there were other distortions of the gospel going on in those days with the Apostle Paul and the, the, the people that he was writing to, not with him, but the people who he who he ministered to. And he spends Romans 5 talking about how uh, how we've been declared righteous by Faith, He says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have obtained access through Him, talking about Jesus, by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then in chapter 6, he begins of Romans, so that's in Romans 5, in chapter 6 he begins to warn believers not to fall into the trap of what I call exploiting grace of god or cheapening the grace of god he says in romans 6 what should we say then should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply absolutely not he says how can we who died to sin still live in it he says isn't isn't that the story he goes on in verse 3, he goes on to talk about baptism, and he's saying, isn't that the story that you told when you were baptized? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. Paul was warning them, don't fall into the trap of thinking because you have prayed the prayer or because you have Uh, You you know, maybe you have publicly uh, proclaimed your belief in the gospel that that somehow allows you to live in a way that is ungodly. He says this is not a blank check. Don't take advantage of it. Friends, if you think about this, every sin that we commit, praise God it was paid For Jesus on the cross at Calvary, and yes, we take comfort in that. And yes, when Jesus died, he died once for all. His death on the cross paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. But think about the anguish that Jesus endured to pay for that sin. Think about how costly it was, the bruises... The beatings that Jesus endured, the nails going through his hands and his feet, being tortured on the cross. Friends, Jesus' death was costly. Paul's saying, hey, don't, don't cheapen it by going out and living crazy. He's telling the Romans that God's grace gives us freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. God's grace gives us freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And now Jude is telling believers with the, with many of the same issues. he's dealing with these believers and he's telling them the same thing. There are people in those in, in that day in the church that was saying, hey we believe in Jesus, but yet their values and their morality, we're completely um, uh, at odds with the things of God. Their moral compromise, uh, the moral compromise of those influencers tells us a lot about them because moral compromise often reflects bad theology. Moral compromise in your faith reflects that there's something maybe you don't understand about your faith, or maybe something you don't care about your faith, which, by the way, means you got bad theology. So what's theology? That's that's what you believe about the things of God. Moral compromises are a reflection of bad theology. Listen, we live in a day and in a world where some churches have openly embraced some things that the Bible calls an abomination, okay? Now, hear me on this. I am not saying for one minute that you and I ought to be hateful to anybody who believes different, okay? There's a difference in saying, hey, I love you, and I disagree, but I still love. There's a difference in that in saying, oh, well, if that's offensive to you, we'll just ignore what God says about it and sort of uh, and embrace whatever it is that you feel about it. You see? There are many churches, churches, people who say they believe in the Bible. They're openly embracing uh, things that sadden the heart of God many other churches and organizations in in an attempt to avoid being accused of being intolerant. Many of them are adopting a secular worldview that is tolerant of certain groups of people while being openly bigoted towards another group. So how can that happen? Uh, How can that happen in the church, friends? It can happen because there is an enemy of God in this world and he is seeking to devour and he is seeking to deceive. He is a deceiver. In John 8, Jesus is talking to a group of people. When he tells this group of people, he says, hey folks, he says, you are of your father the devil. He says, you want to carry out your father's desires. He's basically saying you want to do what the devil wants you to do. He reminds them the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He has not stood in the truth because there is no truth in the devil. He says when he tells a lie, if he speaks from his own nature, he is, he is lying because he is the father of lies. So anything that comes from the enemy, it's going to be a deception if it comes from the nature of the enemy it doesn't mean that Satan might not lace in a little a little truth and wrap some uh, wrap some of those lies and deceptions with a little bit of truth but what we see is anything that comes from the enemy himself is dishonest. Jesus says to these people, Listen, friends, you're wrong about what you believe. This is what Jesus says. Jesus is saying to them in John 8, Hey, listen, you've been deceived. And you know who Jesus was talking to in John 8? He wasn't talking to the barbarians. He wasn't talking to the, the, uh, the, the uncultured people that were considered to be, quote, uncivilized. He was talking to a group of people who went to the temple every week. He was talking to a group of people who said openly, we believe in the God of the Bible. We believe in the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And we want to serve Him. We have to understand that that there is an enemy of God that is seeking to deceive. See, the people Jesus was talking to in John 8 were people whose hearts had been diverted and distracted away from the truth of the Word of God. And they were being diverted away from the fullness of God's grace and diverted away from a devotion toward holy living. Jude says, be contenders of the faith. Number one, because our faith is under attack. It was under attack in those days, first century A.D. and it's under attack today. But number two, Jude reminds us that not everybody sees the attack. He he reminds us that, that, that not everybody is going to understand. For these men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They've come in secretly. Some translations say they crept in unnoticed. Listen, that's what makes these kinds of deceivers so dangerous as they go unnoticed. Most people don't understand how dangerous the things are that they are proclaiming. Most people don't understand the danger of the influence that they are uh, that they are that they are uh, wielding around, they don't exactly walk in <clears throat> with a parent uh, parental advisory label that says parental advisory, false teacher, you know, uh, right in front of you, okay? Because uh, the the truth is is that uh, uh, is that that's how they. Gain, that's part of the, the method that the enemy uses is he puts people on our path to get us to trust them. And we often trust them because, because they're not just telling outlandish, crazy things. They often are wrapping these things in, uh, in something that, that, uh, that maybe contains some ounce of truth. But yet it's still dangerous. There's a daily devotion book uh, called Today in the Word, and in a devotion from June the 3rd, 1989, there's an illustration that illustrates the danger of trusting the influence of the wrong people. It talks about a man who said uh, uh, in his day, this man made free use of Christian vocabulary. He talked about the blessing of the Almighty and the Christian confessions which would become pillars of a new government. This man seemed like a man weighed down by historic responsibility, like he felt a responsibility to to honor the history of his nation. It says that he handed out Pious. If you don't know what pious means, it means religious. He handed out religious stories to the press, especially to church papers in those days. He showed a tattered Bible and declared that he drew his strength from this great work and from the scores of religious people that had welcomed him. Uh, They welcomed him as being a man sent from God. And in the last line of the devotion, the author says this, Indeed, Adolf Hitler was a master of outward religiosity with no inward reality. You see, when Hitler rose to power in Germany in the 1930s, nobody fathomed the chaos, the death, the destruction that he would cause, the German officials never would have allowed it. They never would have allowed something that would have led the nation to participate in something as evil as the Holocaust. But Hitler was a master of outward religiosity. He said many of the right things in order to gain the public's trust. Friends, a, a false teacher can be right part of the time. They can be right part of the time and still be wrong about a lot. Even a broken clock is right two times a day. If you have one of the old clocks at least, I guess, right? A broken clock is right at least twice a day. Because there was no inward reality to his faith, Hitler led his people to do horrible things. Things. Friends, the most effective false teachers are the ones that are right most of the time. They're the most effective ones. You have to understand, the devil's a liar. Not only is he a liar, he is good at it. Miss Christy was praying a little while ago before I came up. And she said, God, help us to know what we can do. What we can do to be better believers. Friends, I, I, I believe that you and I should be committed. We should have the Berean commitment of Acts 17.11. Let me read it to you. It talks about a people in Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica since. It says these Bereans welcomed the message, talking about the gospel, scripture, they welcomed the message with eagerness, and examined scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So as people came preached, they said, we are ready to hear from God. Tell us something from God. And as, the, as Paul and Peter and all these people proclaimed this message from God, then they went and said, man, that's awesome. Now I'm going to look and make sure in God's word that that is true. See, that should be our commitment. We should be Bereans. That's what it means to be a contender of the faith. Friends, don't take my word for it. My word doesn't matter. It doesn't mean a hill of beans in the kingdom of God. Look it up in God's word. Because His word and His opinion is the only one that matters. Be a contender for the faith. Number one, because our faith is under attack. Number two, not everyone sees the attack. Number three, the stakes are high. The stakes are very high. Look at verse four. It says these men that come in by stealth, what they do? They're turning the grace of our God into promiscuity. Some translations say lewdness. And they're denying Jesus Christ. Our only Master and Lord. Two things were happening in the church in those days. Number one, people were taking the idea of God's grace, as we talked about, and distorting it and using it as an excuse to live in sin, which, which caused them and allowed them to practice all kinds of immoralities of the flesh out in the open without any shame and without any regret. Okay? That's what it meant. Lewd behavior. That's what that means. <laughs> uh, they were loud and proud with it. But number two, by doing so, these people who said they were believers—this wasn't lost people, folks. Okay, these weren't the, the, the these weren't the, uh, the 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 hostile unbelievers of that culture. These were people in the church, and by doing so, they were cheapening the value of God's grace. And the authority of God's word in the eyes of unbelievers. Thereby, with their lives, they were denying the lordship of Jesus and leading people away from truth instead of toward it. Be contenders for the faith, for the gospel. Gospel is important. Paul says in Romans 1 that it is. The power of salvation to everyone who believes. It is the central theme of the Bible. You say, what's the Bible about? The Bible is about a God who created you with a purpose. And that purpose is lived out in your life through a relationship between you, the created, and your creator who is God. The problem is, the Bible says is that God does not have community with sin. Scripture tells us that all of us have sin. And so everyone has sinned. That means that no matter what you do on your own, you can never know and fulfill that purpose that you were created for. You cannot have a relationship with God on your own. And even worse, the Bible tells us that that because we are without a relationship with God, that those who, are, who step into eternity apart from a relationship with Christ will spend eternity away from God in place of torment. But when we read the Bible, we see that God's love and His grace provides a way of salvation for you and for me. A path to redemption. God offers redemption for sin through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And the gospel, the message of the gospel, calls us to respond not by works but by faith. By faith we receive God's free gift of salvation. By faith we repent of our sins and, and of our old way of life and we surrender ourselves to God. By faith we resolve to serve Him for the rest of our lives, and by faith we strive. doesn't mean we're always going to succeed at it because we're still imperfect creature, but by, creatures, but by faith we strive to obey His commands and walk in the way of His holiness. This week I had the, uh, the blessing of being able to be a part of a doctoral seminar through New Orleans uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. It's one of our Southern Baptist seminaries. Um, in the SBC, I'm pursuing a doctorate through, the, through them. And so I was uh, on a, in a class. My professor was Russian. He's a Russian immigrant. Uh, it was really interesting to hear a guy that half the time had a Russian accent and then half the time had a Cajun accent. It was really, it was really unique. But he said a lot of things that stood out to me. But one of the things I want to, I want to share with you today is we were talking about the church and we were talking about evangelism. He said, the holiness of God, the holiness of God, is disappearing from evangelical Christianity. The holiness of God is disappearing from evangelical Christianity. He said, Christianity is not just another coping mechanism for the problems of life. That we are called as believers, if you are saved by the blood of Christ, Part of your calling from that point on is to live a life of holiness, to pursue holiness. You're not perfect, you never will be, but we pursue holiness. Folks, the gospel message is a message of God's holiness and how how the holiness of God pierces the immorality of the human heart to transform it and sanctify it for His purpose. And that is the essence of what Jude is contending for. That is the essence of what Jude is telling believers to contend for. You know, on September the 11th, just before the passengers of Flight 93 began their their fight against the forces of evil that were on that plane, as they stood up as a group of contenders for truth and justice. One of the people on the telephone heard another passenger say, let's roll. Jude is telling us to be contenders for the faith. Not for a faith. Not for your version of the faith or my version of the faith. But contenders for the faith that has already and forever been established in God's Word and presented in Scripture. Be contenders. Let's roll. Pray with me.